Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Patrick Wotuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. This week we teamed up with a new festival in the city, Our Place in Space, for true stories on the theme, Our Place. Sadly, Podrig couldn't be with us as he was working, but don't feel too bad for him. His workplace is the Greek island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And while I would have loved to be there with him, I think I got the better deal as the evening of June 29th in the Black Box was a truly memorable night of amazing stories and an amazing audience. And going into the house, there were police officers and paramedics, and disbelief was etched on the faces of all those present. Mum pronounced, You've the gift of tongues. Shalalalalakatea. <laughs> Standing outside in my pajamas, I was surprised to see that it had snowed overnight. But it was May. Okay, let's get stuck in. And Aidan O'Boyle was the first timer at the Tambay Nine Mike with a wonderful story. Just a piece of local info. The Holy Lands doesn't refer to the Middle East in this instance. It's an area of Belfast that gets its name from the streets. Palestine Street, Damascus Street, etc, etc. You get the idea. Anyway, here's Aidan. Our place. Like any good story, in my opinion, although I might be slightly biased given that I'm the one telling it, this one is going to diverge hugely from the topic before making a tenuous link back and hoping that a pleasant audience will give a 10 by 9 newbie a buy ball. Our place means many different things to many different people. Being from Port Stewart, our place reminds me of home. And home to me means family. It means friends. And especially at this time of the year, it means one friend in particular. Like many people, and I'm sure many in this room tonight, I grew up playing GA. I played for my local club, Onura, uh, in Corian, which, despite its name, is based mainly in our seaside town of Port Stewart. And I still play to this day, and I've been incredibly fortunate to meet some of my very best friends through the club. One friend in particular, and a friend who reminds me of our place every time I think about him, is who I'm going to tell you about this evening. Michael McQuillan was born on the 22nd of June 1997 in Belfast. The son of Margaret, who I'm delighted to say is here with us tonight just down there, and Paul and the younger brother of Joseph. From young age, Michael and his family would travel from their home in North Belfast to Port Stewart every weekend to stay in the house that they owned in the town. And this is how we came to know them. My brother Connor and I became friends with Michael and Joseph and as they played with us in our club and we grew up soldiering together, as we said, on the GA fields, our place became their place too. And although being from Belfast, the family were in Port Stewart that often and they spent all their summers there, that it very much became their place as well. And over time, perhaps due to a mix of his, to our young North Coast ears anyway, alien Belfast accent, as well as some of the more questionable decisions that young fellas make when they're growing up, Michael was rechristened Smicko, and Smicko was how he would always be known to us. 
Small in stature, but big in heart, is how Michael has been described by some. And a wee rocket is how he's been described by others. And so our place for our little gang of friends at home became our friend James's garage. James had kitted the place out with speakers and old TVs and old games consoles. And that, plus its proximity to Port Stewart Promenade and its seemingly never-ending collection of ice cream shops, made it a young teenager's dream. So we wiled away those summers hanging out in that garage, going swimming in the sea, playing hurling in Gaelic, staying over at each other's houses and generally enjoying the long, unpressured days that come with one's youth. And those summers made us into each other's families. I'll never forget when our place became the no longer open Kelly's nightclub in Portrush. Like every teenager, standing in the queue hoping to blag your way in with an older school friend's ID was one of the thrills of our young lives. Our place was our local club pitch, putting days away training and playing matches, going up when we had nothing else to be at, to puck around or kick a football. Our place became our community. And as we got older and began to move on to university, our place became the infamous Holy Lands. Although I never lived with Michael or Smicko, as he was well known by then, like all groups of students, our houses were revolving doors for each other. And in my final year, especially, you were as likely to find Michael asleep on my sofa in Agincourt Avenue as you were to find him asleep in his own house. So our place became the student haunts of the Hatfield, the Rose and Crown and the Limelight. Our place became each other's sofas and living rooms. And sometimes it's probably better not to tell the stories of what happened in those particular places. And two years ago, when the COVID pandemic hit, our place became, like everyone else in the world, our homes. Our place became our vehicle to keep other people safe. For Michael, this was back in North Belfast. Confined to the company of his nearest and dearest, Michael, his mother Margaret and his brother Joseph spent quality time together with walks up the cave hill, often breaking those long and sometimes terrifying days. Their place became their sanctuary and with the new addition to their family of the egg with the dog only adding to it. As the days of the first lockdown eased in July 2020, Margaret, Joseph and Michael moved back up to their place in Port Stewart. It became home again. They settled in for the summer and our place became, for an all too brief moment, our group of friends again in Port Stewart. On the 11th of July 2020, I was lying in my bed at home near midnight when I heard my mum coming up the stairs. That's strange, I thought. Mum had already bid her good night, and besides, upstairs was, even at that stage, very much my and my brother's domain. Mum rarely ventured up, mainly, as she said, due to fear of the mess. And she opened the door of my room. Aidan, something's happened to Michael. Uh, something's happened. We need to go up to the house. Margaret's been on the phone. And it's hard to exactly describe what I felt at the time hearing those words. Disbelief was probably the first reaction, then denial, and then a desire to act. So let's go, I said, and getting dressed, we jumped into the car and made the short two-minute drive up the road to their house in Port Stewart. And I'll never forget the image that greeted us. An ambulance was parked outside the house, and people in the cul-de-sac in their place were standing outside looking at what was going on, and everyone had the same look of sorrow on their face. This 
couldn't be happening. I remember thinking, how could this be happening? And going into the house, there were police officers and paramedics, and disbelief was etched on the faces of all those present. In all our years growing up together and in everything we did together, none of us had ever known that Michael had a severe peanut allergy. He had eaten some food with peanuts in it before coming in to his mum and saying that he felt a bit unwell. And unfortunately, coupled with his asthma, he had not stood a chance. We had lost a friend, a teammate, a brother and a son. And it's hard to know really how to describe the days and the weeks that followed but one thing is for certain. Our place came into its own. And bearing in mind that this was still in the days of social distancing and mask wearing, of no hugs or hand checks, and of isolating ourselves to keep other people safe. But the community rallied in a way that I have never seen before, and I'm unsure if I'll ever see again. These were our people, and this was our place. And on the day of Michael's funeral, only 25 were allowed into the chapel in Port Stewart. And out of all of Michael's friends and teammates, only myself, my brother, and four of our friends were in, along with a few others and Michael's family, of course. And my abiding memory of that day is of carrying Michael's coffin out of the church doors and being greeted by a sea of maroon and green, which are our club colours at home. The entire town had ground to a standstill as club members stood ready to bid their farewells to an undoubted legend. And I remember leaving our place in Port Stewart for the last time and driving past the clubhouse and the club pitch and making the journey to Milltown Cemetery on the Falls Road to lay Michael to rest. And I remember going that evening to our local back home and to do what many Irish people do after a funeral and have a few drinks to remember him by. And I remember last year, on the day of Michael's anniversary, club members and non-members and those from further afield gathered together again for one more time at our place on our club pitch for a mass to mark one year of his passing. And sporting the jersey that was designed and sold in his honour, which you can see there, um, so it's got 23 and his, his name, Smicko, on the back, um, and every penny raised from that went to the anaphylaxis campaign charity. And I remember looking around at the hundreds of people that were there that day, looking around at our place and at our people and feeling so proud and knowing, and just knowing that Michael Smicko was there looking down on us all. Such a great tribute to your friend, Smicko. Well done, Aidan. I hope you'll be back soon. And if you have a story for 10 by 9 then get in touch through the submissions page on our website, which is 10 by 9com We are always, always looking for storytellers. Or you can contact us through our social media channels. That's the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, next up, we'd not heard from her for a while, so it was a delight to welcome back Donna Hunter. Our place was a vintage lover's dream back in the 70s. A vision of thick shag pile rugs, an orange leather sofa, teak sideboard and a matching coffee table. And the pompous grass, oh my God, I loved it. Still do. How it feathered out of its tall, white, opaque vase next to the 50p shaped 
glass dining table and the white leather and chrome curved chairs. The decor changed soon after my younger sister was born. I was about 10 and mum woke up one morning and declared she'd found God and had joined a charismatic renewal group in North Belfast along with my aunt. Out with the old and in with the new and that applied to the cool trendy 70s furniture she replaced with shades of beige and brown. Everything was a bit beige and a bit brown. The lino, sofas, bedding, even our clothes. Like the brown Rupert the Bear check trousers and tight ribbed polo necks that nearly dismembered you as you pulled them down over your head. <laughs> the much loved picture of the faded wild stallions racing across an unknown landscape and the heavily engraved copper plates bed pans and brass ornaments I'd grown accustomed to polishing were replaced with growing numbers of intimidatingly large religious icons, crucifixes in every room, stick candles, busts of various saints and the occasional travelling statues. Our place was transformed into a theatre of the grotesque. The usual suspects were lined up and hammered into every wall of the house, bang, 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 one after the other, Leonardo's Last Supper, Pope John Paul II, the Holy Trinity, St Martin de Porres, St Michael the Archangel and on it went. The most popular and iconic image, the image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, took pride of place in the hallway, illuminating the dark wood panelled wall opposite the front door, giving an ominous sense of foreboding to the uninitiated. Encased in its 3D frame, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, complete with its battery-operated red candle <laughs> made the bleeding heart of Jesus and his eyes burn incessantly, almost demonic. The thick green velvet curtains, when pulled across the front door at night, made the space a touch theatrical. The sacred heart image served more than one purpose in our place because over the years it scared off many potential boyfriends. <laughs> With its inflamed red heart and eyes, it scared the bejesus out of them. And if that didn't do the trick, then my dad's ban on the curry chip after a night out certainly did. <laughs> on the opposite wall, nailed within reach of the light switch, so you couldn't miss it on entering or leaving the house, was the other staple of all good Catholic homes. The bronze water font, <laughs> topped up with a constant supply of holy water, brought back from recent pilgrimages. We had buckets of the stuff. <laughs> The Catholic faith and charismatic renewal um, were live and kicking in parts of North and West Belfast at the time my mum joined, and she immersed herself fully in them, literally. She was even baptised in the spirit. It wasn't unusual for me to accompany her to the local prayer groups, seminars, retreats, and special masses taking place in parishes across Belfast and around Ireland, in fact. Nor was it unusual for me to witness the laying of hands, the slaying of the spirit by so-called faith healers. I suppose I was a wee bit curious uh, back then and I sometimes got, to, and sometimes got to meet other kids at the meetings and at family camps in the summer. They would often grow bored serving biscuits and listening to the endless prayer sessions and wished I was a normal kid again, back home kicking about with the big ones in my street or playing It's a Knockout at the local summer scheme. But back home, our place had become an extension of this ecumenical playground. My mother now trained up as a charismatic leader, 
and our home became a house of prayer, hiving with a full calendar of activity. Everyone and their granny turned up to participate in group-led prayers, private masses and blessings by the local priests and faith healers, or to pray for special intentions or get a wee touch of the Padre Pio's miraculous mint. (laughs) (laughs) Prayers were often accompanied by songs of praise and the speaking of tongues. My mum occasionally provided other entertainment, playing her three-chord songs, while I kept the teapot and visitors' bellies filled when I wasn't joining in with them. I had a go at shouting out random words just like them. (laughs) Mum pronounced, You've the gift of tongues, after she heard me utter them for the first time. I have to confess, I just made them up, or copied them, just to keep her happy. I was too young to comprehend the nature of the gifts of the Holy Spirit received during my confirmation, let alone claim to know how to speak in tongues. But I had a few favourite words. They were, <laughs> it was easy to remember, harder to write down. And shaka kaka sounds a wee bit like shaka I really remember the rest. But if you put them all together, it sounded a bit like supercalifragilistic. Ali Doshas only said even faster. I sometimes overheard her tell people about my gift. That's our young Donna. She's the gift of tongues, you know. (laughs) She was so proud of her daughter's gift. And it wasn't the only one she believed I had acquired from the Holy Spirit. A good few years later, probably just before I moved out of the house, my aunt popped in one day to see him pray in front of the statue of the crying Madonna. She'd been doing the rounds in West Belfast homes, like some of the other statues we hosted, and it was our turn to host her. Mum laid her best blue rosary beads over her hands and perched the Madonna precariously on a glass table by the window. She stood there like a bowl beacon to anyone who hadn't been to our place before. A shrine of artificial flowers and tall pillar candles lit so perilously close that you could smell the singed dust encircled the statue. The Madonna's head tilted slightly to one side, yet her eyes appeared to follow you around the room. And the flickering candles across her waxy face gave the impression that she was indeed crying, or might just be melting. I plunked myself down on the comfy Parker Knoll chair, the best seat of the house, usually reserved for the priests, and facing the statue, with my mum and aunt kneeling on the hardwood floor either side of me. I don't recall the reason why they wanted to pray with me, or even why I agreed to it, but... As I said before, this was normal in our house and you didn't need an excuse to pray. So I bent my head close to my chest, shut my eyes tight and forced concentration as the session opened with intercessory prayers, followed by endless decades of the rosary, a few choruses of Ave Maria and other songs of praise that got louder as time went on. And, of course, the obligatory speaking in tongues. I muttered a few under my breath. Just as the prayer session seemed close to the end, I can recall a sens- feeling a sensation of heat radiating across my shoulders. Was there warm healing hands being laid on me? I couldn't be sure, but kept my eyes shut rather than find out. It was at this point I had a vision. In the vision, I was kneeling on a cold spiralling stairwell, reminiscent of the type found in a stone tower. My head was lowered, as if in prayer, and I was sobbing with a heavy heart. A tremendous bright light startled me, and when I looked up, 
I saw a figure reminiscent of the crying Madonna in our front living room. She was surrounded by a blinding white aura. The figure hovered close until it was just a few steps from where I knelt. I could now make her face out and was transfixed by her beauty. She was smiling down at me. Her arms were outstretched with the palms of her hands cupping upwards. She motioned me to stand up. When I did so, gestured me to come closer. As I did, I felt the intense heat radiate through my body, like I'd never felt before. She comforted me with her soft and calmly spoken words. Donna, don't cry. You're loved and you're very special to me, dearest Donna. I was overcome and burst into tears, forgetting where I was until I heard mum and my aunt's voices. Donna, Donna, what is it? Why are you crying? I couldn't reply momentarily, but eventually blurted it out. They jumped to their feet, hugging me tight and squealing with delight. Praise be the Lord. Blessed art thou. And repeated some of Our Lady's words back to me. You are very special, Donna. What a gift, Mum exalted. Are they mugging me? You've been given the gift of vision, announced my aunt. First the gift of tongues and now this. This wonderful gift of vision, they continued. Now, I was brought up to believe that anything was possible from God and in the name of our Lord. But my God, this was a bit personal. I nodded in agreement just to shut the pair of them up whilst I turned there into a silent blue blasphemous mess. I tried to make sense of it and pull myself together, but I was in shock. And like, what the actual had just happened? I couldn't be doing with the burden of having not one but two spiritual gifts. And dealing with even more exposure and palaver that came with it. Thanks God, but no thanks. However, as an optimist and firm believer, if something happens, it happens for a reason. I eventually accepted it for what it was and that it did happen to me for a reason. At that time, I needed to hear those words and feel loved. And my heart was filled to the brim. Thank you so much, Donna. That was amazing. And I think the first time we had someone speaking in tongues at 10 by 9. Ten by nine is always free, but if you'd like to support us, you can give via Patreon or PayPal. Links at the website. We're so thankful to everyone who has. Or maybe you could give us a rating, takes a second, or a kindly review, takes twenty seconds. Wherever you get your podcasts, Patrick and I would love you forever. Mostly though, we're just grateful to have you listening. Okay, on to our third and final story in this podcast, and the organisers of our place and space said they had a few people who wanted to tell stories. Here's one of them. Adriana Dufay. On the night of May 17, 1980, I was on a camping trip with my new family. I was eight and a half and more of a reader than a hiker in my thick prescription glasses. But my handsome new stepdad was very athletic and liked to do outdoorsy things. The divorce had been traumatic and my mother deserved a break. So my little brother and I were trying to be game. Well, I was. He was only five and mostly ate snacks. I remember my mother that day was beautiful. Thick red hair pulled apart into pigtails, tall and slender with long legs and beautiful pale skin. 
She was wearing a blue terry cloth hoodie and khaki short shorts. We all wore terry cloth and short shorts. It was 1980. So here we were, this funny little family walking a trail in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Um, if you haven't been to Oregon, it's a section of America above California and below Canada. Um, that's where I'm from. The strip along the ocean is quite like Antrim Coast, actually. Uh, rocky and cold, craggy, misty, and uh, dangerous. But then add in an enormous amount of trees, hugely tall, densely packed, old-growth pine trees, exuding more oxygen than your lungs can even take in. And then to the side of you, an entire snowy mountain range. It is spectacular landscape. And this is where we camped. After grilling our hot dogs for dinner, our marshmallows for dessert, mom tucked us into our sleeping bags in the tent and gave me my reading flashlight. I was terrified of the dark. And also by the thought of uh, waking up being eaten by a bear. There aren't really bears on the Oregon coast, but I had read that they might be attracted to food in your car and I wasn't sure where the cooler was. I eventually managed to sleep. And then I was shaken awake. It was morning. I remember the funny look on my stepfather's face. His hands were bumbling as he tried to get the transition radio to work. Standing outside in my pajamas, I was surprised to see that it had snowed overnight. Everything in sight was coated with a thick layer. In fact, it was still lightly coming down. But it was May, and something about the light in the sky was odd. It wasn't reflecting. It looked um, dim and swallowed. And then I realized this wasn't snow. It was ash. Like every other American kid growing up at the time, I had trained in my mind for nuclear holocaust. When the Russians bombed us, if I survived, I would grab my little brother and heroically do something on my bike. <laughs> the truth was almost as improbable. At 8.32 that morning, one of those nearby mountains had erupted. For years prior, scientists had been monitoring Mount St. Helens about 250 kilometers north northeast of where we were camping. And just two months earlier, a bulge of magma had formed on the north side of the mountain. Warnings had been given and people had been evacuated. So what happened was that in the early hours, an underground earthquake caused the north face to slide away. And the molten rock and steam bubbling just underneath burst through and exploded northward. But we were on the south side, not the north. None of that affected us. But what did affect us was the ash. When the mountainside exploded, a column of pulverized matter rose 24 kilometers into the atmosphere and deposited ash in 11 US states, various Canadian provinces, and especially our campground. The rest of my memory is relatively hazy. We brushed the ash off the car and drove home very slowly, windshield wipers continuously running. Once home, we saw that our house, yard, trees, neighborhood had also been coated. It was kind of cool. School was canceled for a few days. 
And we, when we did go back, we wore scarves wrapped around our faces, ostensibly to prevent us from inhaling the dangerous ash that we kicked up and threw at each other at the bus stop. <laughs> our relatives around the country called us, wondering if we were okay. We swept ash into little bottles and sent them out proudly. Oh, no, it was horrible, truly, but we'd managed to survive. <laughs> I suppose there was part of me disappointed to miss the mutually assured destruction I knew was destined to be part of my childhood. But I was very pleased to find out that steam and ash erupting from a volcano, in fact, look exactly like the mushroom clouds of Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. St. Helens continued erupting for half a year. I could stand on my front lawn and get a perfect view of the whole thing. So. I had actually forgotten about all that. I mean, it lived in the back of my mind, of course, filled with other childhood tragedies like first kisses and flute recitals. But I was talking to my own two children several months ago, and weirdly, it popped back up. We were talking about the pandemic and them being people who are living through that, as we all are. They had kept pandemic diaries in school for posterity because this is a once-in-a-lifetime event. I said, oh, well, yes, that means you'll get one of them in your lifetime. They have to happen to somebody. And maybe, like me, you've tried to reframe this moment, um, this moment in time, for your kids. Did you know that I've already lived through a once-in-a-lifetime event? I lived through a volcano eruption. And I started to tell them the story that I just told you, and as I did, and because I was telling my children, I started to hear it differently as a parent. And I realized, what a terrifying moment that must have been for my mother. I called her later and asked her about it, and yes, it turns out she was scared. There were no cell phones back then, of course, and on the news they were re reporting that the ash could clog your car engine. And there were also mudslides, but my mom didn't know if they were behind us or blocking the highway. So if they drove home, they didn't know how far they would make it. And there was only one payphone at the campsite with an enormous line. And even the people who got through got busy signals because all of the lines were jammed. And then my mom said, that was like 9-11 for you, right? And I thought, oh, yes. That's right, on that particular ashy morning, my now husband and I were separated and I had waited on an enormous payphone line to call my mother and tell her I was still alive. That is so funny, I forgot. I guess that's two once in a lifetime events for me. And that's before the global pandemic, so that makes three. So I've been thinking about this math and wondering if I live one lifetime how many once-in-a-lifetime events will I live through? Do they happen concurrently? Or is it a random overlap? Like, what if you live through seven and you live through nine and I live through four? Although, honestly, if you count Donald Trump in the current situation in America, I'm up to at least five or six by now. <laughs> they stack up, these events for all of us, all in this one fragile lifetime. But my husband has the best perspective. When I was 
telling him about this observation of mine, he added a once-in-a-lifetime event I hadn't even considered, the birth of our first child, and then our second. It's true, those can only happen once. So maybe the point isn't to avoid the once-in-a-lifetime events, but to rack them up, fill your basket to the brim, live all the events, stuff your lifeline. I don't know your lifetime, and you don't know mine, and I am sorry that together we are living through this particular disastrous event. Maybe the next for you will be an exploding volcano, or maybe the birth of a child, but here's to many, many, many more. Thanks so much, Adriana. That was amazing. I hope you'll come back again. And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, email, that is story at 10by9.com or via the website, which is 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes, and please, if you can, tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It is the best way to get noticed and Maybe a wee review or a rating. Thanks to the lovely people at the Black Box, the wonderful people behind Our Place in Space, Oliver, Philippa and Sarah, our wonderful audience, and all our storytellers, but especially Aidan O'Boyle, Donna Hunter and Adriana Dufay. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.